All right, uh, we're continuing our series in James. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to James. Uh, We'll be in James chapter 5 today. We've called the series Faith Works, and James has challenged us, kind of pummeled us, pushed us, prodded us to see that faith is a very dynamic, real working of a sovereign God in our lives. It's a God coming in and invading our life, turning our life upside down, if you will, and our faith then is, is a transformative dependence on this God, on his grace, on his goodness, on his kindness. We're going to live differently. We're going to head in a new direction. Um, so we've called it Faith Works. This week, we're calling it Patience Works. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11, it's page 1013 on the Black Bibles. There are some kind of scattered around under the chairs. If you don't have a Bible and want to kind of follow along with where we are this morning, we'll just kind of march through the text, James 5, 7 through 11. Um, Last week, we were really hammered that we can put our faith in riches, in money, in the things of this world, and miss the real treasure of who Jesus is, that Jesus is ultimate treasure. And we were reminded, I I read also from Matthew, where Jesus reminded us to uh, put our treasure in heaven and not our treasure in earthly things, and to trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus is accomplishing in the world, and not to di- get distracted by all the earthly things. And there's a transition then this week where you can kind of see the logical flow where he's saying, if you are being oppressed by these rich people that seem to have everything working out for them in life, then uh, don't be jealous of them. Don't try to say, well, forget Jesus. I'm going to trust in their God, money, right? Because Jesus hasn't been working out. Obviously, money's working out for these other people. So he's saying, don't switch your faith alliance, your allegiance from Jesus to money, but hang on. Be, be patient. Patience works. He uses words like endurance, stand fast, you know, hang in there, be patient, keep going, persevere. So verses 7 through 11, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We'll end there. Uh, We'll pick up the other verses next week. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We trust uh, that you are at work through it. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you love us. You've proven that to us through Jesus, but we pray that you would give us eyes to see, help us to, to trust. We pray that your spirit would meet us here. We don't pretend that, that what we're doing is, is purely rational. Um, we believe it's even more than that. We're reasonably trying to understand what you've said in your word, but we're praying that your spirit would meet us here and open our eyes so that we wouldn't be blinded by this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the very humbly, humbling things that happens when you preach and teach God's Word, and you've probably seen this if you're teaching a Bible study or, or even just talking to your friends about your faith, is often the things that you aspire to or the things that uh, you get excited about in the Word and you're learning or you're teaching to others, God begins to teach you sometimes in painful ways in your own life. Has that ever happened to you? And you're thinking, wow, this is, this is more than just an idea on the page. This is something I'm living. And it kind of hurts 
sometimes. The last two years have just been kind of a quirky time in our family where it's like everything's breaking. You know, uh, nine years ago, we moved into a what was a new house to us because we went from an 80-year-old house to a 10-year-old house, right, or a 12-year-old house. And so going from an 80-year-old house to a 12-year-old house is like, we've got a brand new house. This is amazing, right? We were just so in awe that we didn't have to fix everything. Well, we've been there nine years now, and something happens, I guess, when houses turn 20, 21. Um, Just last two years, everything's broken, like everything, right? Um, I've also got a couple of teen drivers now, putting my first kid in college, another teen driver soon, too soon, and uh, so we've got extra vehicles, extra old vehicles, you know, just so there's just my life, the last two years has been full of brokenness and lots of expensive bills, right? And so just feeling in over my head as a man, financially, which is an inability to keep up with everything breaking down in life. And it keeps reminding me of one of my favorite bands. There's a band called Switchfoot um, that has this real cheery song. It goes like this. Everything is broken. (laughs) Everything is broken. Everything is breaking down, breaking down. Everything is bleeding. Everything is bleeding. Everything is breaking down, breaking down. Do you see the encouragement I find from the song? Entropy and aching. Where have we been aiming? Everything is fading out, fading out. We are the faded, splitted, and sedated. Everything is fading out, fading out. Um, I hope that song has encouraged you as much as it encourages me. Uh, There's a little little peak of encouragement in that song towards the end. I'll, I'll come back to that later. But... I know all of you struggle with this, right? Like you might not be where we are with the house breaking or the car breaking or the other car breaking or the other car breaking, but there are things in your life that break, right? You might be struggling with sickness. I know a lot of you are just struggling with your your bodies breaking down, which again, I'm 42, so I've been facing that as well the last couple of years, but some of you severely, right? Some of you facing cancer, some of you facing terrible disease, some of you facing depression and find it maybe for the first time in your life where you know, I've always been able to just hop out of bed, but I can't get out of bed anymore. You know, I mean, some of you are just facing things you've never faced before. It might be relational stress. It might be a divorce or just difficulty with grown kids or uh, with your spouse. I I don't know what it is specifically that you're facing, but I know you're facing it, right? We're, We're all facing these difficult trials. Remember where James started us? Trials are difficult, but they're opportunities for us to be patient to endure, to cling to Jesus in the midst of difficulty. So I know because you're a human and I'm a human that that you're facing difficulty because everything is broken. Everything is breaking down. I want to encourage you that James tells us that we have hope because Jesus is coming back. And the world we live in is not just brokenness, right? Switchfoot, I will say, overstated it a little bit, okay? It's not everything is broken, everything is broken, everything is broken. Just kind of everything is mostly broken, right? We, we live in a world, Francis Schaeffer said it like this, where, where we are glorious ruins. If you walk into a junkyard and you see a 69 uh, Mustang and it's rusted and it's broken down, broken down, there's still glory there, right? And so that's the weird paradox we live in in this world. We know the glory in us and we know the glory in the world that God has made when we see a sunset or a sunrise or just the beauty of uh, a blizzard outside like is happening right now, just the the change of the weather. We, we see the glory and the beauty of how God has made the world, yet it's creaking and aching. And the way Paul says it in Romans 8, it's groaning. It's longing for completion. It's longing to be fixed. 
So we all live there. We all walk this line of everything's awesome and everything is broken. How do we make sense of that? Well, James, the New Testament, makes sense of that and says, yeah, the world is glorious and it's broken. Jesus came in to fix it, and he's coming back, and he's going to finish the work that he started. We have great hope that Jesus is returning. And so as Christians, we're called to hang in there, to be patient, to endure, to keep, to keep fighting, to keep fighting for joy, to keep fighting for beauty. The first thing that James hammers us with is that patience struggles for progress. So this might seem contradictory. If you believe Jesus is coming back to fix everything, wouldn't that make you just sit back and not do anything, right? You might think that, but the New Testament says again and again, our hope is completely in Jesus, right? We know that Jesus has completely forgiven us and adopted us into the family of God. He loves us. He's given us this incredible grace. There's nothing we could do to make God love us more. He loves us ultimately through Jesus. And you know what that does? That motivates us to live in a new way. That motivates us to fight. Same thing at a cosmic level. We know Jesus has begun and will finish the fixing of the cosmos, of the world, of the universe. And disease and disaster is going to be finished. And we're headed towards that day. And you know what that does? That motivates us to fix things, to take next steps, to continue to struggle for progress, to continue to make the world in the image of what God designed it to be. It doesn't make us just give up and say, oh, I'm just going to sit on my hands because Jesus is coming back. No, it makes us strive to honor the vision that Jesus is going to complete and make whole when he returns. So patient struggles for progress. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, he says it this way, Be patient, therefore, brothers. So that's the command, right? Be patient until the coming of the Lord. So that is the goal. Jesus is going to fix everything. But the Jesus fixing everything doesn't make us passive. It makes us continue to struggle and slog and fight it out. So listen again, be patient therefore until the coming of the Lord. If it ended there, we might think, okay, be passive. And he goes on and he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So he says, be patient like a farmer. How many of you grew up on a farm or have ever gardened? Raise your hand. Some of you, okay. I've asked this before. We have a high percentage of city folk, so sorry about that. Um, so you may not f- fully understand how this works, but, but when you grow things, it's a tremendous effort. It's hard, hard work. And you know also that ultimately God makes it grow. Ultimately, God makes it grow. God sends the rain. God makes these natural processes work. Sometimes seeds work. Sometimes they just sit there and nothing happens. I have a picture here of a uh, farmer in the Middle East, and he's hoeing a little ditch for irrigation. Um, He's trying to get some water to some of his plants so that they'll grow, right? So he's working his way from a stream where there is some water, and he's getting it down to where his plot of garden or farm is. He's trying to get the water there. It's hard work. If you have a garden, you have to weed the garden. If you have a garden, you have to water the garden. If you have a garden, uh, you have to fight off the birds that want to eat your fruits and your vegetables, right? You have to fight off the bugs. You know, there's all these different strategies and tactics and ways about which we might do these things. But if you're going to farm, if you're going to garden, it's hard work. It's hard work. You slog it out. You have to be patient. You have to wait on the growth. But that doesn't mean a passive patience. 
That doesn't mean you're sitting on your hands. It doesn't mean you're not doing anything. You're working. You're working. And that's what we've seen again and again throughout the book of James, that faith, ultimate trust in Jesus, that Jesus has conquered the world, that Jesus has conquered our sin, means we live differently. We live differently because he has conquered and because he will conquer. Again, James says, wait on the Lord to come back. Wait on the Lord to come back. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gives real specific instructions about his return. Uh, We come from kind of a branch of Christianity that tends to be, I would say, almost too specific about the Lord's return. So our, our, our family of Christianity um, tends to be a little specific, like we know what all the prophecies mean. Makes me a little nervous, right? Makes me a little nervous when I hear my uh, spiritual uncles and aunts making predictions you know, about moons and weird things like that. I would say we know Jesus is returning, and he's going to fix everything. That's what we know. That's what we know. Now, we might quibble as Christians over, well, we know a little bit more about this and a little bit more about that. Granted, right, we can discuss that, but we know that Jesus is returning, and what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, he gave us three parables to tell us what it looks like to live in light of his return. He said we should be ready to party. He said we should care for each other like servants, like a master servant taking care of other servants while we're waiting for the true master to come home. And he said we should invest our talents as an entrepreneur who trusts that the master that gave us the money is really generous and really trusting. We shouldn't just bury our talents, but we should invest them. We should spend what we've been given for the glory of God. So Jesus gives us these three parables that look like progress. They look like hard work. So Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm doing all this stuff. Christian theologians argue about the order, how he's doing it, you know, what the moons mean and the wars mean and all that. We can argue about all that, but Jesus says, do these things. We need to obey him. We need to do the things he's told us to do. We need to be faithful to one another. We need to care for one another. We need to be ready to party and celebrate his return. We need to invest the talents that he's given us. Jesus has made it very clear. He's he's told us what to do. So again, the way I would summarize this is patience means don't give up. Hang in there. Don't envy the rich. That's where we were last week. Those who have put their faith enriches, James has said it's not enough. It's not enough. And again, we've, we've had some confusion. We talked about this last week. There's a little bit of confusion on that because in James, he's talking like, you Christians are poor, and these rich people that hate God, they look like everything's coming together for them, but really they hate God, and it's going to end badly for them. Problem is, we're rich, so that's hard for us to hear clearly, right? We said last week, we're the richest people in the world, so we kind of have to hear it from both sides. We have to hear it from the rich side and be scared. We have to be scared. Have, have I put my trust in riches? Because I'm the richest 2% in the world, even though I might be in the lower 50% of this room. And so we have to be scared. We have to be warned. I sure hope I am not putting my trust in riches. And then we're reassured here in the next session where he says, okay, don't envy them. Don't be jealous of them. That's not ultimate freedom. That's not ultimate life. Ultimate freedom and ultimate life is in Jesus and Jesus' return. So keep slogging away. Keep fighting for what you see as good and true and beautiful. The goal is not the short term, it's the long term. So continue to work, continue to pray, continue to trust God, continue to do all the things James has been saying. Care for the orphan and widow. Encourage one another. Don't bicker with each other, but be kind to one another. Uh, live in a morally pure way, continue to trust that God's law is right and true even though our culture says it's idiotic and stupid to obey God's law. 
continue to trust, no, God is in control, even though our culture more and more thinks he's an idiot. We're going to trust him and say, no, he's a good father, and I'm going to obey what he says. So continue to hang in there. Struggle for progress personally and in your family and in your community. The next thing he says is that patience loves difficult people. I love how James keeps weaving together our moral purity, um, our righteousness, and the, and the idea of what we do, how we obey God, but then also how we relate to people, the, the social dimension. It's going to come out in how we love people. Patience loves difficult people. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says it this way, 8 and 9, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he's repeating himself, right? So again, he's saying the coming of the Lord is motivating to us. Jesus is going to fix everything. It's going to be all right. Hang in there, and he's going to come back and fix everything. Everything's going to be made right. The world's not going to continue to be broken and bleeding. It's going to get fixed. So because Jesus, big brother Jesus, is coming back to fix everything, be someone who fixes things in your little universe right now, okay? Trusting that he's ultimately going to fix things. Be patient for the Lord's return. Establish your hearts is a, is a word that kind of means like strengthen, right? So it's that kind of going back to stand firm. He uses that word later in here as well that we saw in the beginning of James. It's just that kind of dig in, right? The, the Roman soldier digging his cleats into the ground. Stand, stand your ground, dig in, be patient, knowing Jesus' you know, reinforcements are coming. He's going to help you out. Things are going to be all right. And then he says, verse 9, a little bit of a turn here. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he says, don't grumble against each other so that you may not be judged. Behold, the real judge is standing at the door. I'll give my paraphrase one more time. I'll say it this way. Don't judge one another. Don't judge one another because the real judge is coming. Don't judge one another because the real judge is coming. Don't be talking trash about one another because the real judge is coming. Don't heap more judgment on yourself as you judge others saying, I've got my stuff together. I don't know why other people can't get their stuff together because I have my stuff together. James keeps saying that's what we're saying when we judge people. I've got my stuff together. I am righteous. I am holy. I am good. That's what we're saying when we grumble against our brother and sister. You are, you are such an idiot. Why can't you get your stuff together? I've got my stuff together. It's so simple. I just wake up and I do things right. That's a very, very dangerous thing to say. We should expect lightning bolts in that situation. Romans 1 says that though God's wrath doesn't send lightning bolts, God's wrath gives us over to our own desires. God's wrath says, okay, if you think you're God, I'll let you be God. I'll let you do your own thing. So James is warning us, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's this motivation, this motivation that we wouldn't see ourselves as better than others, but that we would love others. I heard a story, um, and this is really slightly, I was thinking about this just this morning as I was you know, getting ready to share this story. I was like, this is kind of a slightly different motivation, but it's related. So let me share the story first, and I'll show you how it's related. Um, there's a story about a man uh, who's on a subway, on a subway train, and his kids were just running wild. You've probably never seen that in your culture before, parents ignoring their children. Well, in this story, it happened, and this dad was just kind of ignoring his kids. His head's just down. He's distracted. His kids are running wild, and they're basically just annoying everybody else on the train. And the people on the train were really frustrated with them, and finally someone 
who was a, a strong justice truth teller, decided they would tell this man he needs to get his kids under control. And uh, they said something to the man, and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, you're right, I'm sorry, yeah, they're out of control. I was, just, I was distracted, we just left the hospital, uh, their mother just passed away. Um, and of course, that changed the perspective of everybody watching these kids going wild, right? When you see the struggle that someone has, when you recognize, oh, their, their mom just died, he just lost his wife, he's in a crisis, you have a completely different view of people. The gospel helps us to see that we deserve judgment and we're broken and that Jesus has shown grace to us despite our deserving of judgment and wrath. And that changes our mindset so that then we see other people through that lens. So that instead of seeing other people through the lens of, I've got my stuff together, why can't you get your stuff together? We've now had our mind change and we've seen, I've been shown grace, so I'm going to show you grace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of extra patience. So the way, the way James phrases it is, is a little more negative. Hey, the judge is standing at the door. If you think you got your stuff together, the real judge is watching. We'll see if you really have your stuff together. So again, James kind of pummels us. James is kind of tough on us. We know there's gospel in there, right? James told us very clearly in chapter 4, but God gives more grace. He gives more grace. So humble yourself before him. Humble yourself before him and he will lift you up. So here's a picture of naughty children on a subway to go along with my story. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know why I picked these pictures. It's, it's become a habit now. It's just like a breath. Okay, take a breath. All right, we'll move on. Patience loves difficult people. So if you're dealing with difficult people in your life, I want to give you some steps to kind of try to put this into translatable action steps. Um, you've got difficult people around them. You find your, around you, you find yourself judging them, right? Um, I, I do that. You do that. We all do that, right? We find ourselves judging people, not seeing them in a gospel light, but th- seeing them in a self-righteousness light. I've got my stuff together. Why can't they get their stuff together sort of light? Um, so first of all, I would say just be honest with God about that, right? Confess the state of your own heart to the Lord. That's one of the beautiful things we read and learned in the Psalms is that we can be honest with God in our prayer life. It's a beautiful thing about the Psalms. The Psalms encourages us to bring our gripes and our frustration and our grumbling instead of grumbling at people to talk to God and say, God, I know I'm not supposed to grumble, but I'm feeling grumbly, right? Like, I know I'm not supposed to be judging people, but I'm, I'm feeling it, God, and will you, will you bring justice? Will you do what's right? Will you help me sort this out? And we, we talk through those things with God. Our prayer life should be honest. Our prayer life should be honest. And we shouldn't wait until we have all the right words to begin talking to God about it. We should come to God humbly. God, I don't think I've got my stuff together. I think I'm thinking wrong thoughts, but this is what I'm thinking. Can you, can you help me work through this? The historic tradition, we call this confession. We just confess to the Lord. God, I've, I've got this, good, bad, and ugly. These are my thoughts. This is where my heart is. Will you help me to get to where I need to be? And that's what prayer is, is talking to God about that. Um, I'd say a second step is then beginning to think through it logically, remembering that you're a difficult person, and the Lord loved you. Remember that the Lord loved you and your difficultness. If you have no ability to recognize your own difficultness, um, Jesus says this. He says, I didn't come for the healthy but the sick. So, uh, again, a scary prophetic word from the Scripture is if, if you have no problems, then God is not for you. 
if you really have all your stuff together, Jesus doesn't have salvation for you. You're, you're saving yourself. That should be a very scary place to be. So I would say remember that you're difficult too. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I would say the final, final step of this is then begin to see them through that light. Jesus loved me when I was difficult, so I'm going to love them even though they're difficult. I'm not going to pretend they're not difficult, right? Remember, you, you prayed, you, you had your honest prayer with God. God, these people make me crazy. Help me deal with them. Help me not to have these thoughts about them. Help me not to be judging them. And then take concrete steps of love towards these difficult people. Figure out just one tangible thing you can do to love them. And the cool thing is, I shouldn't say that. I was about to be sarcastic. This is what we think. We think that if we love them, then everything will be better, right? They'll stop being difficult. You ever think that? Maybe you've gotten that far. Okay, God, I get it. I'm difficult too. I'm going to take tangible steps to love them. I'm going to pray for them. You're going to help me. I'm going to do right by these people even though they're crazy. And does that cure their craziness? Usually not, no. Sometimes there's real progress there, right? We, we keep working for, for slow progress. We talked about that earlier. But sometimes we're not going to see the progress here and now. There's eternal fruit we might see from that, but we're not necessarily going to see them magically cured in the here and now. But Jesus loves us, so we're going to love them. Love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is something you do. Love is an action, right? That's why we have I heart clean shirts. Okay. The last concept that James hits us with is that patience suffers with hope. Patience suffers with hope. So there's suffering, but there's also hope. We walk through both of these things together. Um, patience suffers with hope. Uh, I was talking to a friend this, just this week about different worldviews. I think one worldview would say um, there's not really suffering in this world. It's all an illusion, right? That's one way of dealing with it. Another says we achieve hope for ourselves through suffering, right? So that might be kind of like the Eastern worldview versus maybe a Stoic worldview. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of different varieties of these things. Christianity says suffering really is difficult. It really is painful. It really is bad, but God can do good things through it. God can do good things on the other side of it. God can work all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So patience suffers with hope. Verses 10 and 11, he says it this way. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he's like, remember the prophets. Things didn't always go well for the prophets. They spoke on behalf of the Lord, and they got stoned or killed or griped at or ostracized. It just didn't always go real well for them. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Remember, he's given us echoes then of chapter 1, where he says, again, that we'll find blessing if we hang in there if we dig in and trust and have faith in Jesus through difficulty. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he starts us off with the prophets and with Job. The prophets and with Job. So he says, hang in there, be patient, be steadfast, another way of saying it. Dig in, trust God, wait for his return and you know it's not necessarily all going to go real well for you, right? Things didn't go well for Job. If you know the story, things didn't really go that well for him. In the end, things went pretty good for him, but there was a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering that most of us would not choose. Most of us would say, I don't, 
I don't want to suffer that much to get to the good stuff, right? So he says, patience suffers in hope. Think of Jeremiah. He's sometimes called the weeping prophet. He tells us to think of the prophets. This was the weeping prophet. If you ever read Lamentations, uh, I've joked sometimes that the word lamentation is Hebrew for I'm really, really depressed. I don't know if you've read the book of Lamentations. There's just a lot of groaning and pain and suffering. Patience uh, suffers, but patience suffers with hope. We trust that the Lord is going to fix things. And so it brings us into those psalm sort of conversations where we say, God, I know you're fixing everything. I know you're gracious. I know you're a good father. So, so why so much suffering now? Or so why can't you fix this right now? Or, or can you hurry up and fix this sooner than later? And it brings us to those kinds of conversations with the Lord. And he's big enough to handle those conversations. So we suffer, but we suffer with hope that he's ultimately going to fix things. Here's a famous Rembrandt picture of, of Jeremiah the prophet with his head down. He's called the weeping prophet. I would say that it's probably fair to say that of all the prophets, that all the prophets were weeping prophets. All of those who spoke God's words suffered and struggled. And so I would encourage you to see yourself as a prophet in a sense. I mean, we don't want to take that too far, like you're writing new scriptures or something like that. But, but what I'm saying is think of yourself who is speaking the words of God to those around you in the midst of your suffering. Um, as, as I watch friends suffer, as I walk beside people who struggle as a pastor, as I get to pray with people and cry with people and talk to people and listen to people as they're suffering, um, that, that encourages me, that teaches me, that helps me to grow in my faith. They're speaking God's word to me. As a pastor, I want to have a ministry of presence and I want to read scripture to them and I want to pray, you know, I want to have something to give them, but often they give so much more to me as they just faithfully struggle with God. They suffer, but they suffer with hope. So, so know that God uses you in that way. God uses you in that way. One of the things we think is that if I'm going to demonstrate God's faithfulness to the people around me, I'm going to do it by success. Do you ever think that? I know I think that sometimes. I think the way I'm going to show that God is awesome is I'm going to have a shiny, clean life. And that's how people will know that God is awesome. But I think if you look at the life of the prophets, if you look at the life of Job, if you look at the life of the apostles, you see that people know that God is there in the midst of our suffering. That's when people see God's faithfulness in our life, when they see us struggling and hurting and crying, but continuing to hope in the Lord. So I want to encourage you, number one, if you're suffering, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. That means you live in this world, okay? That means you live in this world. And if you come into faith in Jesus, that doesn't mean instant uh, taking away of your suffering. That means you found hope in this world of suffering. Continue to be patient. Continue to trust the Lord. Continue to know that God wants to use you to testify to his goodness in the midst of your suffering. C.S. Lewis says that this way, I think this is from the problem of pain. Lewis says, pain is not good in itself. Okay, so we got to hear that again as Christians. Pain is not good in itself. We don't just love pain. We consider that an opportunity for joy. Our trials are an opportunity for joy. Pain is not good in itself. What is good in any painful experience is for the sufferer, his submission to the will of God. And for the spectators, the compassion aroused and the acts of mercy to which it leads. So basically he's saying pain is an opportunity for us to trust God and for other people to see God at work in our life. 
Pain, pain is a great opportunity for those two things. Remember, you can testify to God's goodness in the midst of pain. I want to go back to the, the uh, strangely encouraging song by Switchfoot again to wrap it up. It says, everything is broken, everything is broken. Everything is breaking down, breaking down. Everything is bleeding, everything is bleeding. Everything is breaking down, breaking down. Entropy and aching, where have we been aiming? Everything is fading out, fading out. We are the faded splitted and sedated. Everything is fading out, fading out. And then a little, little glimmer of hope here. We are broken. We are bitter. We're the problem. We're the politicians watching for our sky to get torn apart. Come on and break me. He's saying, we're the problem. Like the world is broken because of us. We're a part of what's broken in the world. So this humility that James talks about, as I said, James has been hammering us is bringing us to a place of brokenness where we recognize I'm, I'm just as much a problem in this world as, as my neighbor that I want to grumble against. And the solution is Jesus. The solution is ultimately what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus took our sins upon himself on the cross. Jesus died, but he resurrected from the dead, proving that he conquered sin and death, that he's victorious, that he really is the king of the universe. And we trust that that king that's accomplished that great victory is returning to set all things right, to put everything back together. And that's, that's our hope. We're motivated to be patient because we're watching for him to return. We're watching for the sky to get torn apart. The last little phrase in our section says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's what makes us different. We're all broken in this world, but what makes us different if we have faith is we've seen that God is compassionate and merciful. We've all seen that the world is broken. We all know that. What makes us different if we have the eyes of faith is we see that God is compassionate and merciful, and we see that most clearly through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll worship together. God, thank you that you are gracious to us. Thank you that you are hope in the midst of pain and suffering. Uh, God, I pray that we really would be encouraged, that as we're discouraged to recognize that we're much worse off than we thought, we would be encouraged to recognize that we're much more loved than we ever imagined. We thank you for those encouraging words. We pray that you continue to show us how to live it out. Thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.